This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. The latest round of negotiations on NAFTA, the trade agreement between the United States, Mexico, and Canada, came away with zero results. Negotiations will continue, but the comments coming out of these latest meetings didn't suggest that they were that close to a deal that would appease the Trump administration. To take a look at the talks, we are joined on the phone by Andrew Bjorklund, who's a professor and chair in international arbitration and international commercial law at McGill University in Canada, and also by Matt Gold, adjunct professor of law at Fordham University in New York. Andrea, great to have you with us today. Matt, thank you very much as well. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And Matt's going to be uh, with us uh, right now. Hello, Matt. Great to have you back with us. Yes, great to be here. Thank you. Uh, To both of you, Andrea, I'll start with you. Your reaction to the latest round of negotiations? (laughs) It's hard to, you know, you can read anything into it that you want. One possibility is cautious optimism, because rather than uh, walking away, the negotiations have been extended until at least the first quarter of 2018, which is... Uh, when I say cautiously optimistic, at least it's better than uh, saying, you know, no deal, we're walking away by the end of December. That's the uh, a date uh, line in the sand. Matt? Uh, I think this is a manifestation of a series of impasses which were entirely predictable. Uh, I think I've said before, Dan, on this show that the United States has got a wish list And uh, we really don't have the leverage to get most of the things on the wish list. So this is a process for the Trump administration uh, to get over um, the idea that they simply just don't have the leverage to get most of the things on their list. And and they're going to have to go through a process to to get over that internally. What is it that that you believe they think they have in terms of of an advantage going into this process? Well, they think their advantage is the size of the U.S. market. It's easy to make the assumption that having a very large market and a much larger market than the other two participants in the free trade area uh, gives you more leverage. But it doesn't give you extra leverage unless you're bringing that very large market into the free trade area or unless you can credibly threaten to pull that large market out. And the threat to pull it out has never been credible. Uh, Andrea, from from Canada's perspective, what and I saw a commentary about the fact that the the demands by the U.S. are considered harsh. From Canada's perspective, what demands are they seeing that are harsh right now? Well, you know, there's the uh, one would be the uh, 50% U.S. content for automobiles uh, before the automobile would be uh, considered NAFTA compliant. Uh, the the second is the limitation on government procurement and the ability of foreign companies to uh, to, to uh, compete for government contracts. Um, another is the the challenge to Canada's dairy and supply management system. Although parenthetically, I'd say that's altogether predictable and something that you know Canada certainly expected, I believe. Um, and then finally the. Uh, attacks on dispute resolution, both Chapter 11 and Chapter 19. So I think all of those are, and then this kind of 
sunset clause uh, idea. Yeah. I think all of those are causing consternation in Canada. Well, and the sunset clause, Matt, is, is seemingly something that, that uh, both Canada and Mexico have concerns about, which, if, for those people that don't know, seemingly is just a way for the United States to potentially renegotiate this at, a, you know, at an incremental period of time, whether it be five years, 10 years, whatever it may be. Yeah, I'd love to say a couple words about each of those things, but the yeah. sunset clause is definitely the um, the biggest one. I mean, it, it, it is an absurd ask, uh, and even people on the American side uh, were just stunned when the when the Trump White House came up with this. Uh, American industry was stunned. The professional American trade negotiators and the professional uh, American uh, trade policy people at U.S. Trade Representative, the Commerce Department, and, and State Department elsewhere. We're all, all just floored. It, it is an absurd ask for a myriad of reasons, but it, it's not good for any of the countries. In order for any country, including the United States, to exploit the advantages of a free trade agreement, the companies have to be able to engage in medium-term and long-term planning and investment. And nobody can do that if there's a five-year sunset provision that says that the agreement's going to die in five years uh, unless the, um, the countries revote to reaffirm it. Well, and the, the the potential of doing any kind of trade where that's concerned just gets kind of blown out the door if you're talking about a five-year window to uh, to renegotiate. Uh, when you look at also uh, from Mexico's perspective, Matt, I'll p- put you in that realm. What is Mexico concerned about the most outside of the sunset? Uh, Mexico has a few asks. Um, you know, and Canada and Mexico both have a few asks, but many fewer asks than the United States has. Um, Mexico wants to improve customs procedures. Um, Mexico is apparently pushing back on something that the United States and Canada both expected uh, Mexico to capitulate on, which is uh, moving the uh, environmental rules and the labor rules of NAFTA into the main agreement, which would make them enforceable. Right now they're inside agreements and they're not enforceable. Um, so those are among some of Mexico's concerns. Andrew? Uh yeah, I think, you know, for Mexico, um, I mean, Mexico is maybe a little bit uh, more more dependent on the U.S. than uh, Canada in some ways. And I think Mexico has assumed that the United States would have a bigger understanding of the need for, let's say, prosperity and predictability and some economic uh, growth in Mexico because of the the challenges that remain in, in, with drug running and uh, uh, insurrection in Mexico. And it yeah. doesn't, that, those concerns just don't seem to be animating the United States negotiators at all right now. One of the things that we have, have not talked about to this point, Andrea, is uh, the auto industry. And seemingly that's the one that, that kind of does connect all three on a variety of different fronts. Uh, where do you see the issues potentially playing out for, from uh, the auto industry with parts going back and forth uh, between all three countries? Well, I think it'll be uh, harder, I think, for Mexico perhaps to replace the content that Mexico gets from the U.S. and Canada, uh, at least in the initial uh, initial stages. Uh, in the United States, there seems to be an assumption, and Matt, you would uh, maybe know more about this than I, but that the jobs that are currently in Mexico, the auto parts that are manufactured in Mexico and that come across the border to the United States, will now be uh, – 
manufactured in the United States, again, um, and the same might be true, said to be true of Canada, but given the United States' other free trade agreements and given the comparative advantage of labor in other countries, Vietnam is the one that springs to mind first. I think it's far from clear that those jobs are ever coming back from, to the United States, whether or not NAFTA is uh, renegotiated. Matt? Yeah, well, first of all, yeah, the U.S., the auto sector straddles the U.S.-Canadian border, and that goes all the way back to 1965 because, of course, before NAFTA was the Canadian-American agreement, and then there was a special mini-agreement between the U.S. and Canada all the way back to 65 that covered just cars and car parts. Uh, and um, there's no way to untangle that. The cost of untangling that to um, the U.S. automotive sector would be staggering. Um, and to the Canadian automotive sector. Uh, on the Mexican side, um, yeah, there's no, there's no, no one, you know, the microeconomics of what would happen if um, we significantly change the rules of origin would, uh, are, are beyond anyone's ability to predict for certain. But there's no question that the United States might actually come out behind uh, if we were to change the rules of origin the way the Trump administration wants to. And Andrea mentioned that, that they want to do two things. They want to require um, the higher level of North American content, and they want to require um, uh, this new additional requirement, which is that there be a certain amount of U.S. content, and the proposal is 50% in every car coming into the United States from either Canada or Mexico, and that's unheard of yeah. in right. a free trade agreement. Um, usually, it's, it would be North American content yeah. um, would be the only measure of whether there's uh, enough uh, <laughs> content to move the, the, the vehicle back and forth across the borders duty-free. Some of the comments uh, regarding Mr. Lighthizer, who's uh, involved in these negotiations, uh, are, are are pretty sharp right at him in terms of what he is kind of bringing to the table so far, Matt. Uh, in, in not knowing him, and I don't know if you do, what's your reaction to to those comments as well? Well, first of all, I don't know Bob Lighthizer personally. Um, I certainly know his whole story, what he's done his entire career very well. Um, I think... Um, I think he's he's has a few failings. He's a very smart guy and a very capable lawyer, but he spent almost his entire career doing uh, anti-dumping law and countervailing duty law, which is a very specialized kind of litigation for relating to just two types of trade barriers, which cover probably about two percent of the entire breadth of the field he now has to cover as um, U.S. trade representative, and he only covered it as a lawyer, not as an economist. And I think. He's very, very over his head uh, in terms of dealing with the White House's ideas um, that are completely new and different, and right. um, most of them have never been done before for good reason. Andrea, comments? Yeah, I don't, I don't know him at all. I, I would just say that anybody in that position has got to be in a when I say a, a horrible place because you have what we assume are demands from the White House that are in some senses, almost crazy, like laughable. <laughs> I mean, the, you know, the 50% content, oh, we're going to have a joint yeah. agreement, but I get 50% of the pie, and you guys can each share 25% of the pie, um, even though we've never done that in 23 years, and even though nobody else has ever done that, is kind of a, uh, you know, it's a strong beginning negotiating position, and I think most people wouldn't want to make that. So I think you have pressure from the White House to make these kind of um, to stake out positions that one assumes will be negotiated uh, down a little bit, and then maybe your own instincts, which might lead you in a different direction, but you're kind of stuck with what the White House wants, and you have this, um, I don't, 
this kind of odd dynamic in this particular White House where uh, you've got the Commerce Department, uh, the Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, who initially was, you know, at least thinking he was going to lead the NAFTA negotiations and is still quite influential uh, about uh, an influential advisor to President Trump. And you have this Peter Navarro in the White House leading yeah. the White House Office of Trade Policy or whatever it's called. So it's not that USTR is the lead trade negotiator in the way that we have traditionally seen it. You've got these other centers of power jockeying for position. So uh, the the all sides are going to meet in Mexico City coming up uh, in the next couple of weeks, if memory uh, serves me, Andrea. What kind of expectation do you have for anything potentially moving forward out of this next round of negotiations? Well, I think the the uh, Mexico and Canada will have the opportunity to respond, if you will, more uh, thoroughly to the United States uh, uh, demands and to really consider what it is they're, I guess they're prepared to fight for. Um, negotiating tactics are at issue as well. Uh, I think this is not a, a traditional trade negotiation, so you, I, I wonder how, how much you can, how do I say, trust the United States to stick by its word. Um, right pains me to say that, but I think that's going to have an effect on the negotiation. So I think we're going to see more clarification in what the other governments want, but I doubt that we see much in the way of progress. Matt? Yeah, they pushed off the next round for a full month, um, and they've said officially the reason is because they want to give the professional negotiators on the ground level time to come up with creative solutions to the impasses. Um, many of these impasses don't have creative solutions mm-hmm. because they're, yeah. they're conceptual um, com- Complete conceptual gaps on what is and is not appropriate and what does and does not make sense. Um, and uh, other impasses, yeah, you might be able to come up with creative solutions. Um, like, for example, the Chapter 19 problem, I proposed a series of creative solutions speaking at the Washington International Trade Association um, a couple of weeks ago, um, which no one had thought of. Yeah, so some of these um, are, are lend themselves to creative solutions. Some of them don't. But I think What's really going to go on in this month-long period is the Trump White House having a reality check um, with respect to its expectations and its promises to its constituencies, and and they're going to have to try to figure out how they're going to manage this politically. Well, Matt, what's interesting with when you're talking about these negotiations in general is that you know obviously there are a lot of uh, of big uh, important issues that are involved in this, and there are also uh, smaller pieces of of the U.S. economy that are involved in this as well, and not necessarily smaller, but smaller in the scope. Uh, There was an interesting piece in the Washington Post just a couple of days ago that was talking about how Florida tomato growers uh, are impacted by NAFTA and and the issues that they are having right now. So, I mean, there are times where it's an even broader discussion than I think a lot of people really understand. Yeah, no question. Um, Literally every single American sector... Um, came out of the woodwork, it completely panicked about the possibility Trump would withdraw from NAFTA as a negotiating tactic or that they would somehow change NAFTA in a way that would cost various American sectors um, um, markets in Canada and in Mexico and access to the Canadian-Mexican markets. We never really hear much in terms of support for a trade agreement under normal circumstances. If trade agreement gains your company jobs, uh, the CEO 
um, always credits himself. If, if the trade <laughs> agreement costs your company jobs, the CEO always blames the trade agreement. But when we got close to pulling out of NAFTA, everyone came out of the woodwork, and that made, meant members of Congress came out of the woodwork suddenly supporting this agreement for which we've never really had a whole lot of strong political um, or public support. On the flip side, Donald Trump va validated his own constituencies and constituents' beliefs that, you know, NAFTA is why their dog died and NAFTA causes floods and droughts and the TPP is bigger, so the TPP is worse. So uh, everyone's been polarized. You, you have this um, Trump base that is more anti-Republican, I'm sorry, more anti-trade. Uh, and there was just a, a survey that came out today that um, the Republican, Republicans across the country are more anti-trade, significantly more anti-trade than they used to be. And conversely, Democrats are significantly more pro-trade. Everything has been polarized on partisan lines, and also uh, businesses come out of the woodwork, and everything has become more political. Andrea? Oh, I agree. And one of the big questions is going to be whether um, President Trump can somehow, I don't know, save face, walk back the the promises that he has made to his base, the, I guess, the continued uh, uh, responsiveness, you know, huzzas, uh, cheers that he gets from his base whenever he talks about killing NAFTA mm -hmm. and whether he's willing to walk back from that, whether he is um, whether another issue will raise its uh, ugly head to displace NAFTA from the front pages and people's radar screens. Uh, I, think, I think there are extraneous events that could have an effect on what happens with NAFTA. It isn't even just about what, you know, the, the content of the agreement, the quality of the agreement, or the ability to find creative solutions to these impasses. It could be larger political forces that affect what happens. 844-942-7866 is the number if you would like to join in. 844-942-7866 if you'd like to join in. We're talking about uh, the latest round of NAFTA talks. Uh, or if you can't catch your phone, you can send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. It seems almost incomprehensible, Andrew, but is there a, a possible way where the U.S. would pull out of NAFTA? Well, I think anything is possible. Right. Um, I think it's not very probable. If, or, or prudent, probably. Well, I, I think it's imprudent. Um, that might not stop anybody. Uh, the, the, I think we, what we could see is a, a big question uh, needing probably to be resolved in the courts is whether President Trump actually has the authority to withdraw the United States from NAFTA uh, on his own. Um, and there I would distinguish between his authority to, I mean, obviously he can sign a paper and say, I'm withdrawing the U.S. from NAFTA, but will that have legal effect? And if it has legal effect, does that also roll back the tariffs? Like from a, from a treaty perspective, he can terminate NAFTA within six months, but from a domestic law perspective, does he really have the authority to act without congressional approval? Can he change those tariffs? And that is something we're likely, well, we could see resolved in the courts, I think. Matt? No, I'm, I think that, uh, um, and, and thank you, Andrea, for delineating the issues. Number one, he does have the authority under the treaty to pull us out of the mm -hmm. treaty itself, six months notice. Right. Uh, and we're out. And, and the second question is, once, the, once all three countries, well, the United States is out of the treaty with respect to Canada and Mexico, um, at that moment, the United States is still fulfilling all the terms of the agreement. We're not obligated to anymore, but we are. So the second question becomes, how do we stop fulfilling the terms of the agreement? And the answer is that the agreement has 
400 pages of terms, 400 pages of obligations. Uh, the big main obligation is that we lower all of our ordinary customs duties mm-hmm. for products coming from Canada and Mexico down to zero. And the president does have the authority delegated to him by Congress to sign a piece of paper, an executive order, and elevate all of those ordinary customs duties in one signature from the zero rates they currently have to the global rates, what we call the most favored nation rates that we give to all other World Trade Organization members, including Canada and Mexico, um, when we don't have a free trade agreement. There are 300-plus pages of other obligations in NAFTA, which only Congress can can unwind for us. Uh, But the Constitution gives the authority to Congress to do all of this, and Congress has delegated the authority to elevate those ordinary customs duty rates to the president, but only if he elevates all of them in one signature, only if he does from zero to the most favored nation rates, and only in the context where he's withdrawing from a trade agreement that had lowered the rates in the first place. Is the auto industry really the main sector when you're talking about these negotiations that, that has the biggest, uh, the biggest piece to the pie uh, on this, Matt? Uh, agriculture, I think, has okay. the very biggest piece of the pie. Um, okay. But auto is close. Um, and um, the truth is there are many sectors with big pieces of this pie. Andrew? No, I agree. I think it's agriculture and auto. Um, I, I disagree with Matt that it's quite as clear that the president has the authority to raise all of the tariffs in one go. Um, at least I think that's going to be, res- I mean, I think that's that's going to be uh, a point of contention. Um, uh, but uh, the doesn't mean he can't uh, try and doesn't mean that, you know, there wouldn't be chaos. I mean, they, whether or not he can actually do it, a withdrawal, a presidential withdrawal from NAFTA followed by a potential two or three year long court battle about whether he can really withdraw us from the trade agreement is going to have a disruptive effect on markets anyway. We are joined on the phone by Andrew Bjorkland uh, of McGill University in Canada, Matt Gold of Fordham University. Your comments welcome at 844-WHARTON, 844-942-7866. Or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Matt, we've talked so much about the sectors in this. Uh, if something were to happen like that, and as Andrew laid out, it would be you know quite a time, uh, a lengthy period of time before uh, the U.S. would probably be out out fully of something like NAFTA, what's the impact for the consumer? What's the impact for the people that are listening to us in their cars right now on Sirius XM? Well, there's no question that um, prices will go up on a very, you know, a, a broad array of products. I mean, the United States' largest trading partner is Canada, and the United States' third largest trading partner is Mexico, which is really tied with with almost tied with China, so it's really tied for second. Uh, so on a, a hugely broad array of products, prices will go up because there'll be duty rates on the imported product. They'll also, we'll see very big shifts in terms of jobs. Um, companies, some companies might gain jobs because of, of less import competition, but a lot of companies are going to lose jobs because they lose export markets. So you're going to see a big shuffle with with some sectors, you know, needing people to fill jobs and other people in other sectors being out of jobs, um, there'll be a very significant disruption. And then you're going to have shares, shareholders are going to get killed yeah. um, in places like, like automotive and, and, and all sorts of sectors that will be affected. So everyone has got pension funds and uh, mutual funds and money tied up uh, with institutions that invest them are going to get hit. Um, I think it will be generally recessionary across the country in the long run, but I think it will be a lot worse 
uh, in the short run. Um, I can't emphasize enough how much I disagree with Andrea. Um, I've done the legal research on on this thing, and I've actually spoken to the lawyers um, in Congress, the counsel to the, the trade subcommittees, who are the leading experts on what authority Congress has delegated to the president. Yeah. Uh, and um, and I think it's, I, there might be litigation. She might be right about that, but I, I'm very confident as a professor of law specialized in this area that um, the president does have the authority to elevate those those uh, duty rates. And keep in mind one other thing. I'm, I'm predicting the president will probably at some point trigger the six-month period, but there's no possible way we go all the way down that line and we right. actually let us go out of the agreement. Andrew, I'll give you the last 30 seconds. I just say the argument is that the Congress didn't have the authority to de- delegate that power to the president. That's the response to that. Um, yeah. I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying that is a there. You know, Curtis Bradley, Joel Trachtman, people are writing about this, so that's not a universally held view about one way or the okay. other. Um, and anyway, I think we uh, hope that we don't see the disruption right. that would ensue should NAFTA be uh, should the president withdraw from NAFTA, should NAFTA fail to be renegotiated or even maintained in the status quo. Great to have you all uh, with us today. Thank you, Andrea. Thank you, Matt. All the best. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Andrew Bjorkland of uh, McGill University in Canada, Matt Gold of Fordham University in New York. We will take a break. Second hour of our show coming up in just a minute after the break. Uh, We will look at the uh, Japanese elections, which are coming up this weekend. Uh, We'll talk about that. The snap elections. Uh, Could uh, Shinzo Abe's party be in a little bit of trouble? We'll look into that. And then we look at small business and how small business really needs to have great growth strategies if it is going to truly grow. We'll do that. Hour number two of Knowledge at Warden coming up in just a minute here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 